Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking About Life Experiences with Ola. As you all know, my name is Ola, and we're still on the episode or the season of special educational needs. And this evening, I'll be talking to Miss M. Um, we'll be getting another perspective. And as you know, I'm talking about life experiences. We talk about life experiences, lived experiences, and living experiences. So we don't claim to be experts, but we're talking about what we know, and we're just talking about our own perspective. It's never one size fits all, and it's just interesting to share other people's stories and journeys. So tonight I have Miss M, and I would like her to introduce herself. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so um, much for coming on. I am really, really humbled. And just by the way, um, it is really late. So thank you so much for doing this. I'm glad that you said that. So any mistakes that I make, <laughs> we know that it's because it's late. But um, I'm Miss M. I am a primary school teacher. I'm only in my second year of teaching, um, which means I'm pretty much freshly out of university. I currently teach year three students and would like to say that I've been thrown a bit of an odd bunch this year. Um, mm. I've got such a mix of kids and that's really, really exciting. It's meant that I can experience a whole new outlook and a, and a whole new situation when it comes to being a teacher. Right. Okay. And Miss M is young. So the first question I'll be asking is why teaching? I know we're getting younger and younger teachers these days, but even so, when I was growing up, if I'm being honest, most of my teachers were sort of older and it was not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just that I'm seeing that we're getting younger and younger teachers. So why teaching? What, you know, why did you go into teaching? I think... Whenever I'm asked this question, I, I always go back to me being in primary school myself. And I was always that little girl who loved to teach my imaginary class. And I just always knew teaching was for me. It was always what I wanted to do. And any opportunity I had to do that was always taken up. Um, when I reached high school, it kind of changed a little bit for me. I looked mm. at being a lawyer and my my goal was to always achieve an ATAR that was high enough to get me into law and when I applied for my university preferences I put down law and I also put down primary education and I got accepted into both of them and I just knew as soon as I got the emails that teaching was exactly what I wanted to do there was no passion or interest really for anything other than being able to mould young minds and being able to be a part of creating these incredible humans that are going to be part of the future. So it was never, while I always thought about other options, it was never really a question for me. It was always just who I was and what I wanted to be. Right. Okay. And two years in, are you still feeling like you made the right decision? Um, well, you're talking to me very late on a Monday night during report <laughs> season. <laughs> no, definitely. Of course, every single day I drive at least an hour to work and I never don't want to go in and I never don't want to see the kids. And what I do is what I love and I would not give it up for anything in the world. So I don't think I've ever questioned being a teacher and I know I'm only two years in, maybe my answer will be different in 10 years time, but I'm so incredibly happy with what I get to do every day. 
Wow, I'm glad to hear the passion. And those kids are lucky to have you because I can see <laughs> shining through you right now. But, you know, um, being a newly, well, being a fresh graduate, when I'm in a fresh graduate, two years in. So I'm quite interested in knowing what your experience of special education needs was as an undergraduate. Do you think you were prepared for coming out and getting into, you know, primary school teaching, special education needs? What was the experience like as an undergraduate? I think that at the end of university, I thought I was prepared, but then I was put into the class that I was put into and I had beautiful students, but they had such a range of needs. I think that's when I very quickly realised that what I thought I knew was only surface information. Mm. Um, throughout our course, we learned about learning difficulties and disabilities. We learned about what autism was and ADHD and uh, what the signs of those things are and how to recognise them. But when you're put in a classroom and you quickly learn how those disabilities and difficulties affect the students and the uh, adjustments that you have to make to make sure that they're getting the best learning opportunity possible, I very quickly felt like I didn't know anything. Um, mm. So while university gave, gave me the opportunity to choose to study special education if I wanted to mm. um, I'm a I'm a maths person so I definitely didn't go down right. that route in university but I think that I I wish there was more of an opportunity to do it within our mainstream course I wish I didn't have to go and do further study to be able to learn more about it mm. but I only think that now that I'm experiencing it Right. Okay. Okay. So when you said you had, um, you know, you know, you got put in this classroom with different, with a range. Talk to us about the range of what you have or what you had in the classroom. Um, my first year of teaching, I was actually provided with some amazing support in terms of um, ES staff members. And when I talk about ES staff members, I mean, educational support staff members. So they are there basically to help us ensure that we are giving uh, not only all of our students, but specifically our funded students, the best learning opportunities that we can give them. When so, you mean, so when you mean funded students, just for our <laughs> listeners, what do we mean by funded? I just don't want to assume everybody knows. That's okay. So funded students, when I refer to that, it's usually students for last year specifically. It was students that were diagnosed with a learning disability and therefore had been provided or the school had been provided with funding to help us support them with resources or, for example, having educational support staff there with us throughout the day. Um, so I had those staff members in my classroom and that was because I did have um, numerous funded kids in my room, uh, specifically with autism. Mm. This year... I it's kind of the other way around I don't have those staff members in my room but I have a range of autistic students uh, students that have ADHD dyslexic students undiagnosed students and um, a selective mute in my classroom as well so mm -hmm. I, I have kind of um, learned very quickly as well that while I can 
easily label those students based on the disability or the difficulty that they have. They are all completely different. Mm. What they need is different. The way they act is different. Their sensitivities and the adjustments I need to make are completely different for absolutely every single one of them. Right. Okay. So you not having that support this year, is it because these kids are undiagnosed? Yes. So um, our funding system has actually changed and uh, it's being implemented all over Victoria uh, throughout kind of four or five years. But the students that I have at the moment hadn't been put through the funding process previously, which Mm. means that I don't have necessarily that extra support. While my school is incredible and does their best to provide that to me, there's only so much you can do when you don't have, honestly, Mm. extra money coming from outside sources to help with that. So um, we're also using a new funding system at the moment, uh, which means that students that don't have that official diagnosis but still have learning difficulties and still need that extra support can still go through the process and therefore get funding and and get help and extra resources whatever that might look like. Hmm. So I know we're talking about what that's like for you but I'll stay stay with me for a minute let's go back to the parents of this kid so how do how does that what does that mean for them? I think that it, it's really interesting because I've dealt with uh, lots of different parents. Right. Yeah. Lots of, and of course, when your children are experiencing difficulties and disabilities, there is a whole range of emotions and priorities that would go through your head and, and what do I need to do and how can I help them? I feel as though when it comes to dealing with parents, you <laughs> tend to get one end or the other end of the spectrum. So you have some parents who um, are all for it and understand that their child has extra needs and work with you to make sure that those needs are being met in whatever way possible. Mm. And then you also have the other end where there's almost like a barrier. The parent doesn't want to accept that their child does have this need and that their child does need extra support. And I think that's a really big thing for me too is whether your child has a learning difficulty or a learning disability, whether they need extra support or extra guidance or whatever it might be, it doesn't make them different. Mm. It doesn't make them less than. It doesn't make them a burden or anything like that. And I think stereotypically when you say to somebody, I have a disability, it is looked at as though it's a negative concept or it's trouble. And I think that some parents see it like that and it is really hard, therefore, to work with them and provide that child with absolutely everything that we possibly can when there's a little bit of a barrier there in terms of working with home. Mm, mm, mm. And, of course, that means that, you know, you have so basically it's not one size fits all. You have the parents who will go the extra mile and do everything and speak to you. Then you have this other parents who, for whatever reason, or carers that for whatever reason, they're not accepting. And part of that could be personal to them or trying to process that and all of that. But um, but so with you having, you know, this range in your classroom and not having that support. So how do you balance it? I mean, I, I don't know how many kids you have overall, but how do you get that balance right with all of the children? Because that's a huge, that's a huge ask of you. 
It really is. And I think that I am, like I said before, so incredibly lucky to work where I work. And even though we may not have an education support staff with us all the time, we have leadership members and just an incredible team of teachers that will back you in whatever you need. Mm. Um, I have 24 students in my classroom. Um, Officially diagnosed, I have three with autism, uh, one with ADHD, one who is in the process of being diagnosed for ADHD. Um, I have a selective mute. I have two EAL children that uh, struggle to speak English and to understand. Culture, is I, that because of a cultural background, a difference? So that's called. Yeah, so um, my EAL kids are beautiful, but English is their second language. So right, okay. they're trying to learn things in, in a language that they haven't completely learned themselves, which would be terribly difficult. Um, and then I also have uh, about three or four students that have learning difficulties such as dyslexia. So if you do all of that math, I have a very yeah. large percentage of my class that um, needs extra support and needs adjustments in their learning. And it's something that was a really big shock to me at the start of the year. Mm. But I've slowly learnt how to balance that. And to be honest, the only way that I figured out how to balance that is by looking at every student and instead of going, you have a disability and you have a learning difficulty, instead I now look at them and I go, you all learn differently. You all, all need different resources available to you to help you learn. How can I make that happen for all of you? And I think originally I used to look at students with learning difficulty and learning disability as my priorities for providing extra resources and assistance. Mm. But now I look at my entire class and I think, how can I make you learn best and what can I make available to all of you to make you learn best? And I do that in a lot of different ways. We have so many resources in my classroom that any student can pick up and use during any activity. I make sure that all of my lessons can be completed in lots of different ways. So that mm -hmm. might be, for example, with assessments. I do paper assessments. I mm -hmm. do iPad assessments, verbal assessments. Um, if my students don't feel comfortable with any of those, I allow them to show me in whatever way they can that they've learned the knowledge that they need to learn. Um, Another way that I love, and I have to throw it in here because <laughs> I think I will support this concept for the rest of my life, is my flexible seating in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So that comes in lots of different ways. What it means for me is I don't really have normal seating in my classroom. Oh, what's, I realize... normal? So what's normal seating supposed to be? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us what normal seating is supposed to be. We don't know. You <laughs> sit at a chair at a table, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about school and you think about how students would sit in a classroom, they would sit on a normal chair at a normal table. I realised very quickly at the start of the year that my autistic students, for example, had a lot of sensitivities and those sensitivities were different every single day. Some days they were very sensitive to smell. Some days they were very sensitive to light and noise. Right. Okay. So um, I also had my ADHD students who struggled to be still, who struggled right. to focus and always needed to move. And then I just had some real fun students who 
just wanted to always be up and about and didn't just want to sit in one spot and do their work in one spot. So I very quickly came up with the idea of making the seating fun and interactive and movable. So now my classroom, we do still have normal chairs, mm-hmm. but um, we have six normal chairs in my classroom but they have elastic exercise bands around the bottom of them which means that students can kick their feet and bounce their feet on the exercise bands as they work so they're oh. constantly moving and getting their energy out that way so that's um, one way of them doing what yeah. they want to do okay i like that creativity um, <laughs> <laughs> we have four standing table spots so they're spaces where my students can stand up and work uh, we also have stools available if they decide they don't want to stand anymore. But underneath each standing spot is um, like a big sensory pad. And as you step on it, it changes colours. So it encourages them to move their feet as they're working. We have four yoga ball seats. <laughs> so they're just massive yoga balls that the kids sit on, which sounds like a nightmare, but it works brilliantly. Wow. Um, we have crate seating, which is little crates with cushions on top. Hmm. And then we also have wobble chairs, which are chairs that wobble around. Uh, So every single morning that my students come in, they take their name tag off the door as they enter and they place it in the seat that they want to sit for the day. I no longer assign seating. And that scared me a little bit at first because I thought, oh, no. Yes, right. Fingers crossed. (laughs) It worked. It, it works. works. And, okay, I was waiting to hear. It works. Yeah. It worked. Okay. <laughs> it worked and we do it every day. It took a lot of um, discussion, honestly, and we created guidelines together and we talked about how we could best use our seating and why I chose to let them choose their seats every day was for those autistic kids that have different sensory needs every day, some days when they're sensitive to smell, they want to sit near an open window or a door. Right. When they're sensitive to light, they want to sit away from where all the windows are. When they're sensitive to noise, they want to sit possibly at the back of the room so all of the noise is coming from one direction for them. Um, It was the same for my ADHD kids. So some days they felt really, really energetic and they therefore choose to sit on yoga balls and things like that. Other days they feel like they need to stay very, very still. Um, and so then they choose a chair or a crate seat. I also have a lot of students in my class that struggle with self-regulating their emotions and their actions. And we have what we call safe people. We all have safe people and they are the people that make us feel calm and safe when mm. we don't feel like that. Yeah. And so letting them pick who they're sitting next to means that in the morning they have to recognise how they're feeling And they have to themselves figure out a solution or figure out a way to get through the day. And for some of them, that means they're going to go and sit next to their safe person for the day. For others, it means they're going to sit away from their friends because they want to be quiet and they want to be to themselves. Um, So like I said, it took a lot. It took a lot of discussion, a lot of mindfulness and self-reflection for my students to figure out what they would need when they're feeling certain ways but now that they've got that hmm. it is such an amazing way that I can make adjustments for all of them and make sure they feel safe and comfortable so I feel like when we talk about making adjustments for students a lot of the time or at least 
what I used to think was that that meant providing harder lessons and providing easier lessons whereas now I look at it and go it's about the environment if a student doesn't feel safe and comfortable in an environment there is no way that they are going to learn anything that you want them to learn absolutely I think my other major change, and I won't spew a million at you, I promise this will be my no, last one. No, I'm actually really learning. And I, and, <laughs> and, and I just, you know, I just wanted you to finish for me to say, I just see what you're saying, that the change is just to regulate the behavior as well. And that way, everybody can have a safe learning environment. Because like you, when I started hearing change and adjustments, I always thought it had to be big. But with you talking me through it, and I'm realizing that actually, we don't have to, not everybody requires a whole load of adjustments. So I, I like it. So I really want to listen to this. I think as well, you know, when you're making those adjustments and you're making those resources available to everyone, there is no isolation. Mm. There's no um, obvious kind of, you've got the disability, you need extra help. It's for everyone. I mean, I, not to toot my own horn, but was always very good at school and I loved school. But I know that in high school for me, I could not sit down and just copy off of a whiteboard. I would need to have discussions and I would need to be a part of the learning in a real verbal way. Mm. And I was really lucky because when I used to get very anxious in classrooms, I used to take my work and they would have a separate room that I could go to by myself and I could get my work done. And I look at little adjustments like that and and how much they helped me, but I didn't have a learning disability and I didn't have a learning difficulty, but I had teachers that recognised that I just learnt different. Mm -hmm. And I always want to be that teacher that recognises that we all learn different. Um, So another way that I try and implement that concept into my classroom is through rotations. Now, my school is not necessarily a school that teaches through rotations very often, which is something I saw a lot on my placement um, visits to other schools. But I realised that with this class that I have this year, I needed to implement a way that they could stay moving, that they could complete activities that were not too lengthy because they would lose focus very easily and I also wanted to include interests I wanted to include things like iPads and I wanted to include social activities where they could chat to their friends and involve each other so a lot of the lessons that I teach now we have 50 minute teaching blocks Um, I will do rotations and they there will be five groups Mm. five different stations 10 minutes a station that means if they need to be seated that student only needs to stay at that activity for 10 minutes I'm not expecting them to sit down for 50 minutes I'm not expecting them to stay quiet for 50 minutes I'm expecting them to work for 10 minutes and to make sure it suits everybody there is an activity that will suit everyone we have independent activities teacher-led activities technology-led activities partner activities and group activities in every single round of rotations. And instead of teaching one lesson every day, I'm teaching five very similar concepts or strategies, whatever we're learning, Mm. and they're doing the exact same rotation every day for a week or two weeks. 
Hmm. The reason why it's the exact same rotation and I don't change it up, not only because practice makes perfect, but absolutely, my kids need routine. So many of my students and my autistic students need to know exactly what is happening, when it is happening, what they're expected to do. And by showing them that they can trust me in keeping Mm. that schedule for them, it is really kind of brought them out I feel as though in the beginning of the year when I was doing normal lessons they were in a shell yeah. whereas now I look at these children and they are so engaged and they're participating in group conversations that they normally wouldn't want to be a part of mm. and that's really really special to see that they're heard and and how we go through the funding process is making these things and these processes if the student can't express what they want or what they need or how they feel so when I'm making those adjustments and implementing those different things within the classroom, it's definitely something that I think about. I mean, I have a calm corner in my classroom, which is pretty normal nowadays, but <laughs> my calm corner is full of fidget toys. We have foam mats on the floor. We have interactive boards on the walls because a lot of my students have said to me, sometimes I just need a second to myself to get my mind off of things. And that's how we did it. And that's what we came up with together. I'm never going to implement something in my classroom again for my students without my students' input. Mm, fantastic. I love what I'm hearing. I would love to have you as a teacher if I had to do my primary <laughs> school all over again. And what I like is the fact that you're getting them regulated so that they can thrive rather than spending so much time um, you know, trying to manage their behavior. You've actually sat down and thought, how can I make this rounded so that everybody can thrive? I know we can't get it right all the time, but at least to a certain degree or to a high degree, you're getting them to thrive so that everybody else is not disrupted and, you know, happy children, happy teacher. Definitely. (laughs) And I think as well, like when we are working so hard on trying to teach them reading or teach them writing and they're miserable or they're uncomfortable there's no way that they're going to learn that content Mm -hmm. so my goal is to help develop little people that can recognize how they're feeling and recognize what they need and use that to like you said regulate themselves and kind of be a part of learning if, if a student isn't feeling safe and they're not feeling comfortable, reading and writing and all of that doesn't really matter. And I know I'm a yeah. teacher and I probably shouldn't say that, but when they become adults, it is going to be more important that they can recognise what they need and how to implement what they need to go on with their lives than for them to be a fluent reader that reads with expression and understands what an exclamation mark means. Absolutely. It's, I mean, teaching curriculum is, of course, a priority, but there is no way that I can successfully provide them with an amazing learning opportunity and and allow them to learn that curriculum if Mm. they're not happy with themselves and where they are. It just doesn't make sense to me. You can't have one and not the other. So it was so important to me that that environment was so safe for them. 
Absolutely. And I can, you know, and that makes a lot of sense because once it's safe, whether or not it's what they want to do, they're happy. And I like that. But um, I want to go back to something because, you know, we've heard about autism. I've heard about ADHD. I really want you to talk to us a little bit more about selective mutism. You did say that. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's that for our listeners? Yeah. So um, I'm not an expert. No, as we said earlier, but selective mutism is usually an anxiety uh, disorder where people choose not to speak in certain situations. So for my student, it is where she doesn't feel comfortable talking at school. In saying that, she does have a best friend who is always in her class and she will whisper in her best friend's ear. She is now comfortable enough to come and whisper in my ear. Okay. Um, and sometimes it is a little bit louder and that is a massive achievement that she's working through that. <laughs> little steps. Um, exactly. She is uh, also one of my autistic students. So the question with that then comes, is that selective mutism part of her autism? Is it part of her difficulty to communicate? She communicates fine at home. I have at times sneakily heard her yell at her brother from across the playground really school. Um, but oh. as soon as school starts and she's in those situations she chooses not to talk um, and that was something that was very new to me in a way as a teacher but mm. it also wasn't because I had a girl like that in my year four class when I was in primary school too <laughs> so I just remember honestly looking at this girl and thinking why won't you talk to me why don't you want to communicate with me and trying to let her know that she could and now as a teacher seeing a student go through that it's so interesting to be able to feel both sides of it and to mm. understand why she does what she does but then also to understand how the people around her might feel my feel so I think uh, what was really important for me was learning how to best communicate with her in the beginning. Um, and there are lots of amazing technologies that help us do that. And we did utilise those different apps on iPads that helped her communicate, press a button and it says a statement kind of thing. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. Which is amazing. And my school offered me training on those programs. But to be honest, we very quickly stopped using them because mm. she was able to come and whisper to me or she was able to point to things. We have different resources in our classroom where she can tell me how she's feeling. Mm. And we got into a routine. Again, she's autistic and likes her routine. And okay. we got into a routine of what happens throughout the day and the independence that she has, despite the fact that she doesn't, really verbally communicate the independence that she has means that she can go through her day and learn ask for help spend time with friends and so I think I'm I want to say lucky in the sense that I do have such an independent and hard-working student that has selective mutism although I do think that if she wasn't willing to communicate with me and she didn't already understand by year three the different ways of informing me of things. I think it mm -hmm. would be really difficult to have a student with selective mutism in my class. So, it yeah, it does stem from anxiety and 
my students, I think, is somehow linked to autism. But yeah, it's just it's another another way that she learns, another way that she expresses oh. herself, and just another little addition to my bucket of unique kiddos that I deal with every day. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. Because again, like I said, I just want to assume that because that's probably something new as well. Some of our listeners will be hearing. I mean, I heard you say, you know, you said something about you're lucky, but I think. well you may be lucky you've got her by the same time I think you made her feel safe to be able to come out of her shell a little bit more you know I think there's a lot that you've actually put into place you've worked so hard to make the environment you know safe for her to feel like not only she whispering to her best friend she can actually come to whisper to you and I suppose the other thing I picked from that is the fact that she has a routine adds to her level of safety. It means that she knows that I may not want to talk, but I know what I'm doing. I'm safe enough to go through my day because I have a routine in place. So that that sort of um, works as well. And, and, and that's because you've put in a lot of work to do that. So, you know, we spoke about, you know, the the the, the having the extreme parents or, or some, you know, the different class of parents, the parents that were totally on board and the one so what would you like to see more or how do you think you know again it's not one size fits all we're not expert but we're just thinking how you know for the parents who are probably not on board what do you think in your opinion can be done I think that look if we start with the parents that are definitely on board it is still clearly such a difficult situation it's it's hard for me to understand it's hard for them to understand Mm -hmm. and and to also not only consider your child's emotions, but to consider your own emotions and your own feelings and views on things. When I have parents that are very open and understanding of this uh, child's disability or difficulty when it comes to learning, we're able to have meetings um, and we develop disability inclusion profiles, which is an outline of goals and needs and achievements in Mm. relation to the student. And we're able to develop strategies that are done within school and done within home as well. And I think when you have that consistency throughout the child's day, home, school, home, you're Mm. able to better help them regulate themselves and better help them have smooth transitions because transitions are hard and I think that when you have support from home hard days are easier because you have somebody else to understand Mm. and the other way around as well if a parent's had a really bad morning they know that they can call me and I get it because I'm having those bad days in the classroom sometimes and we talk about strategies and we talk about what we're going to do and how we're going to come back later and reflect on that as well okay that's good I think with the parents that um, have that barrier when it comes to talking about their child possibly having a learning difficulty or learning disability, I honestly think it's about adapting mindset. And I know that that is a big thing to say. And Mm. it's one of those easier said than done situations. Absolutely. But I think that instead of looking at learning difficulty and disability as, again, a negative and a difficulty, looking at it as my child's different and they need different things. And Mm. I'm not a parent, so it's really hard for me to talk on what I can expect from parents. But if I had to 
ask for something from those kinds of parents. It would be a little bit of trust and a little bit of openness because when a parent has a little bit of openness about the situation and a little bit of trust in me, even if they really don't want to hear about it, but if they're just willing to listen and to see what I'm talking about, most of the time it makes a massive difference. But if you're not willing to listen and you're not willing to at least try your best to understand where I'm coming from as a teacher, then it doesn't work. Because to be honest, with those parents, if I could sit down and have them listen to me say, your child is struggling to learn in the classroom because they're finding it difficult to focus Mm. and they feel sensitive in this environment. The way that we can change that is by implementing a safe corner for them in the classroom by providing them with some hands-on resources. It doesn't sound that bad, you know, Mm. in the Mm. sense of all I'm saying to you is they're just struggling to learn with this And here are some ways that we can make it better. It is the funding and the diagnosis of the student that helps us get those resources. Yeah. So does that mean if we don't, well, if if the parents are not necessarily on board, we may not necessarily go through that diagnosis process and we can't get the funding to get the resources. So what I'm I'm hearing is that it has a knock-on effect either way. Mm -hmm. And it means that this unique child, because I'll I'll say they're unique, because every child thrives. It's just finding Mm -hmm. how and what makes them thrive. So it means that this unique child might not get that resource or that extra support they need because we can't get that funding if we don't go through that assessment process. Yes, and you have said that a million times better than I just tried to explain it. (laughs) But I think, and it's 100% right, look, in order to get funding now, at least for my school, which I'm incredibly grateful for, you don't necessarily have to have a diagnosis anymore, but you Mm. do have to have parent approval, parent meetings. Mm. You do have to go through that process with the parent, and if the parent isn't open to that, it means there's no process. That doesn't ever mean that we're going to stop providing resources and it doesn't ever mean that I'm not going to do my absolute best to make that child feel safe and feel comfortable and learn to the best of their ability. It just means it's a little bit harder. But also, as that child moves through their years of schooling, that funding a lot of the time follows them Mm. um, for a certain amount of time. And while... I might have gotten to know the child and I might have those resources available, the next teacher might not. Right. Whereas if that funding and those notes and those meetings and that understanding is following them through their schooling, so is that support. It's following them so much easier and they're not having to start fresh every oh, year. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good point you make because it makes transitioning easier for them because you already have, well, you've already started a plan. I mean, it might change, it might need to be modified, but we've started that process because what we find sometimes is children might go through primary school and they get to high school and this might hold them back. But if they have the same place and we're starting to look at it, it may just need to be modified and that transitioning might be just that tad bit. Transitioning, like you said, is not easy, but it just might make it just that tad bit smoother. 
Exactly. And and we have learning plans for students that are struggling and for students that are achieving high above where you would expect them to be. But when you have that diagnosis or you have those notes and understanding of the student's actions and behaviours and needs, you're able to cater to them so much easier the following year. You're not just seeing a goal about writing. Mm. You're seeing student interests and student needs and environmental needs and learning needs. And, and I think that's what's so important is I'm not expecting parents to feel comfortable with the idea of their child having a learning disability or learning difficulty because I don't know if that's something that you can ever truly feel comfortable with. Mm. All I would be asking for is their help in developing processes that can ensure their child is getting the best learning opportunity that they can get throughout as many years as I can affect. Absolutely. And, and you're right. And I hear what you're saying loud and clear that in, it's never easy to hear, you know, a child or, you know, this little being that you've looked after you, but, you know, you have this idea of what your child should be and then getting this thing. I, I wouldn't say it's ever easy unless we walk in the shoes of those parents or those carers, we would never know what those feelings are like. However, I guess what we're saying sometimes is setting those feelings aside to let this child thrive in the best way possible, supporting them through that. So I have really enjoyed my conversation with you. What I'd like to say, or what I'd like to hear before we round off is if we have that young person listening who is saying, I want to be a teacher, um, Again, like I said, you know, we're getting them younger and younger these days, which is exciting. What would you say to them? Would you say go for it or would you say don't try? <laughs> I would say the holidays are amazing <laughs> and do it, 100% do it because I think something that I saw in myself as a learner and even things that I see in my partner that he missed out on as a learner when he was younger and the effects that they can have if you can become a teacher and have understanding and you can make changes to people's lives, that is one of the most fulfilling things I think you could ever do. And I think that for those little ones that might be listening, I don't know if they are, but <laughs> keep pretending to teach your imaginary class, keep scribbling on the whiteboard, force mom or dad to listen to you teach them about Pythag in high school <laughs> and keep going because honestly the teachers that I work with every day are incredible and if we can have more of those passionate people in our education system there is absolutely nothing that we can't do and there is nothing that we can't help students learn to do and well, if our teachers are going to be like that. Fantastic. I missed a bit of that. I think we had a glitch um, for a minute there. Um, but so where do you see your fa- yourself in the next five years? Um, being a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I would love to be married and be looking at, you know, creating my own little people and supporting my own little people. But until that happens, I just... I want to make students feel safe and make them feel comfortable. And in five years, I want to be exactly where I am now with the people that I'm surrounded by. And I want to be making the difference that I think I am now. That's all I want. I love what I do and I wouldn't change anything about it. So if in five years time, 
professionally, I am doing exactly what I'm doing now, <laughs> there would be absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I would be overjoyed every day. <laughs> Thank you so much, Miss M. I have absolutely loved speaking to you. And again, I have never met a very passionate teacher. <laughs> I have met teachers, but you know, you speak absolutely passionately and your kids are loved. They're lucky to have you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Talking About Life Experiences with Ola. Thank you. Thank you.